0: He's on the half-hand.
1: <laughs> They're back.
2: Two blasties, wildlings. You're not fighting them alone. Come on. Three blasts. to the Mad Max Minute. One blast means rangers returning, two blast means wildlings, and three we'd rather not say because we're talking about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minute 48, which begins with Savannah dragging Max down the side of a dune and it ends with Finn running to meet Savannah. So we start off today with Savannah dropping the lines that are attached to the sled that's dragging Max. She walks a little bit down the dune and she calls out, I guess, to announce her arrival back at the edge of the crack in the earth. We get a lovely pullout shot that shows her in front of this big expanse, which I'm sure is a composite shot. But as I was looking at her start this minute, I had to wonder, I don't think Savannah actually has gone that far from the crack in the earth. And I feel like this is not so much her pulling a leaving as much as going out and doing like a scouting mission. Like you go out, you do the rounds to cover the area just to see are the people that left coming back. They are the waiting ones. And just because they're waiting doesn't mean they have to wait in place. They can go out and keep an eye on things, right?
1: Yeah, it would make sense that they would be proactive about their waiting, which I have a question That will come up at the very end of the minute, so I'll save it till then.
2: Okay. We'll circle back around to it. We will. Yeah.
1: I'm not really sure if they were expecting her back soon or not. Mm -hmm. Was Finn he was kinda halfway between the edge of the canyon and the general group of the waiting ones. So was he posted there? Oh, I think so. Yeah, on purpose just in case someone came back.
2: We're going to learn that these kids have been there their entire lives. Like, this is just how they do things. So I imagine that they've probably developed these protocols. When you approach the crack in the earth, you announce your arrival. They have people spread out in positions to keep watch on things out of necessity. These are essentially children, but there were adults there at one point. So it would make sense that these practices were established either by the children because they had an experience or they were established by the adults because they had heard of other experiences that they didn't want repeated.
1: Especially once the last adult left, that adult definitely put in place, okay, this is how you need to handle security and taught them to have lookouts and to have calls They definitely seem to have a code in their calling. Mm -hmm. So they were probably taught that by the adults who knew that they were going to have to leave them.
2: Yeah. I like how we get this really good look at Savannah as she steps towards the edge of the crack in the earth. And she's got this sort of sigh of relief and this expression on her face that just says, oh, I'm home. And she lets out this cry. And as we switch shots from close up on her... To the wide shot showing the landscape, the music picks up around it, and I, we lose a bit of her shouting, but in the next shot, we get to hear it echo down to where the boy is.
1: We do, and in that big shot, she's nowhere near the edge of the canyon. She's acting like she's standing right on the edge. Like mm-hmm. The way that she cries out, she's acting like she is calling directly into the canyon, when in reality, she's... I don't know, at least 50 to 100 yards away from the edge.
2: She's still got another dune that she has to cross over before she'll be in direct sight of the canyon. But with that sort of situation, how they were filming it, I can understand why they had her stop here and not like at the rocky edge of the canyon. Because it's a lot easier to say, okay, we're going to shoot between these two dunes instead of, okay, now we need to fabricate the edge of a canyon. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you figure this shot is a composite shot. Oh, yeah. I did try to identify this canyon, and none of the movie location websites would tell me where this was. Mm -hmm. They'd tell me about where they actually shot the crack in the earth, but not this overview shot of the canyon. Yeah. So I question if it's real at all.
2: I want to say matte painting. Yeah. Like, I want to say it, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to have to get corrected Or have information provided to me in the listener page. It's one of those situations where it is going to come out eventually.
1: I think perhaps our Australian listeners who are more familiar with the geological landmarks of Australia (laughs) might know right off the top, like, oh, of course, it's this canyon. Yeah. I did look at lists of canyons and gorges and whatnot in Australia. It was incredibly difficult to do a image search looking for something that kind of matched the landscape of this particular canyon, because image searches do a really bad job of actually fulfilling the criterion which you've searched. Yeah. I searched for canyons in Australia, and it gave me canyons all around the world,
2: <laughs>
1: most of which I was not familiar with and didn't know if they were actually in Australia or not. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing about canyons in Australia. I did find out that Australia has a canyon that in some ways rivals the Grand Canyon. Really? It's actually wider than the Grand Canyon.
2: Is it as deep though?
1: It's not as deep. Ah, That's, there you go. Yeah. And it's only about a three hour drive from Sydney and it's called Caper T Valley. Oh, okay. And I was looking at pictures. It is very, very beautiful.
2: Hmm, cool. From the wide shot, looking at this canyon, the next thing we do is we cut down to a lizard. And this is a frilled necked lizard or a Chlamydosaurus king. king. A
1: Chlamydosaurus?
2: A Chlamydosaurus, I kid you not.
1: Why would they burden this poor animal with the name Chlamydosaurus?
2: I have no idea. Probably because the ancient Greek Chlamydo means cloaked or mantled, and Saurus means lizard. Okay. I'm
1: hmm. not going to look up and see how chlamydia got its name.
2: I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that it is a disease that is ravaging the koala community and that there are special chlamydia wards established in australian zoos to help treat the disease
1: you actually looked up chlamydia
2: no i learned that from watching last week tonight with john oliver really okay so russell Crowe got divorced needed to sell off some of his memorabilia so one of the things that russell crow was auctioning off was his jockstrap from Gladiator. John Oliver, from last week tonight, bought the jockstrap, and he sent that jockstrap to the last operating blockbuster in Alaska so that they could have a piece of memorabilia to make their store unique. Now, Russell Crowe knew... (laughs) that John Oliver bought that jockstrap. And so what he did is he donated the money from the jockstrap to, I want to say, the Sydney Zoo. I'm not entirely sure which zoo exactly it was donated to. But the Irwin family of Steve Irwin fame made a video talking about how they have a new koala chlamydia ward at the zoo and they named it the John Oliver koala chlamydia ward
1: oh my gosh yeah oh my gosh okay yeah okay
2: so there you go
1: (laughs) real quick i did look up the origin of the name chlamydia and it is from the same origin name of the greek word that means short mantle or a military cloak so, same origin as the Chlamideosaurus.
2: Interesting thing about the Frilled Neck Lizard is it's usually found in northern Australia and southern New Guinea, and I don't know exactly where we're supposed to be on the continent, but I never got the sense that it was northern Australia, not that I truly believed that all of this was happening in real-world Coober Pedy. but, you know, the thing wouldn't necessarily be hanging out here according to where it usually hangs out. Continuing to talk about the lizard, the its common name comes, of course, from the giant Frill around its neck, which usually stays folded against the lizard's body. They are largely arboreal. They like to live in trees. They spend the majority of their time there. Their diet consists mainly of insects and small vertebrates. The frilled neck lizard is a relatively large lizard, averaging 85 centimeters or two and three quarters feet in total length, including the tail. They can be kept as exotic pets. Opposite the lizard is something even more terrifying a child fun fact about the chlamydosaurus is that they're not actually all that aggressive. When they have their frill out and their teeth bared, they're very unlikely to attack.
1: They're trying to scare something away so that it doesn't have to attack.
2: Exactly. They're trying to scare away predators and whatnot. This chlamydosaurus is trying to scare away this child that he is face to face with And this kid, his name is Finn McCoo, he is not phased by the frilling of the lizard and in fact is hissing back at him. So this kid is played by Adam Skougal. According to IMDB, Beyond Thunderdome is the first and last thing that Skougal did as an actor and offers no additional information about him. So instead of bandying about on the internet, looking at secondhand sources and possibly outdated articles, Allow me to introduce Adam Schugel. Thank you for having me. Adam, thank you for joining us. Nice to meet you. We might as well get right down to it. Can you tell us a little bit about working on the movie?
0: Gosh, I can't believe it was back in 1984 that we shot Beyond Thunderdome. I'm 25 now, so that makes me... (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. Um, So... (laughs) I was ten years old, and uh, I'm 44 now. So yeah, wow. Yeah, it was a great experience. You know what? As a kid, it was. I, we didn't even know what the movie was for a long time. It was. It was a. It was a huge sort of. Uh, the whole process was, you know, we just turned up to these workshops, and and everyone's like, "What is this film?" And and then they were giving us names that weren't anything to do with the Mad Max series. And then it started to the parents because all the kids were there, and the parents started to sort of all these Chinese whispers, and they said, "Oh, this is the this is the third Mad Max film," and um, it ended up, of course, being it. But um, the whole process took, you know, I'm sure that we were in workshops for like six months before we even filmed, and it was really a process. I discovered of, you know, our characters also were organically developed, and, and through the process of these. Uh, workshops that we did what's his name god terry 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 hayes yes he would create our characters we would be doing these workshops and he would go right adam you're going to be we've got a name for you it's finn mcu and you're kind of this personality so you're going to become this child called finn mcu and that was quite thrilling at the time because you felt like you were sort of you felt like your personality was sort of picked up, and then you were molded into a particular. We weren't sort of we weren't cast directly f- for specific roles. We went through a period of just workshopping, and um, Mel Gibson was actually heavily involved in that whole process, which is interesting. So I remember him coming into the first session, and remember that movie he did called Miss, Is It Mrs. Soful back in the day? Yep,
2: he definitely did that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so he had this sort of boy haircut, and I thought, <laughs> oh. Uh, and there he just sort of rocked up and um, he worked with us the whole time, uh, including obviously throughout the filming. But it was, a yeah, it was a really lengthy process. And, you know, when you see, I guess, the scenes that I'm in, there's just so much there that was not included, um, you know, uh, unfortunately on the cutting room floor. But yeah, it was a great experience. Really good.
2: Yeah, sounds like it. I didn't know there was such a lengthy pre-process. So you worked around Terry Hayes. Yeah, do you remember who else as the uh, production staff that you worked with?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a long time ago, but I rem- remember it very vividly. George Miller was obviously, he co-directed it with a, a, another director called George Ogilvie, who I did another film with after Mad Max. But yeah, so we we had, both of those guys were quite comical as directors working together and the kids actually made a a funny little sort of uh, parody video during the filming of george and george (laughs) (laughs) uh, because they used to really sort of have this theatrical dialogue together which was quite a performance so we worked obviously with them a lot and um just all the production people there was just so many you know hair and makeup and and the, the you know all of the different It was all of the different sort of looks. It sounds like a fashion show, but they stick all this ochre in our hair and one minute we had this yellow mud in our hair and then it went to brown and all these Polaroids and different bits of leather and bits of animal hanging off us. Um, I I became a spray tan sort of (laughs) 10-year-old. Like we had to spray this fake horrible tan on almost every day so we looked dark. And wherever we were, it was the total opposite elements-wise. So we were in the cave looking brown. It was absolutely bloody cold. It was freezing. Like we had kids that were taken to hospital because they were so cold. Wow. Yeah.
2: That's wild.
0: Yeah. It was, it, but you know what? When I look back, I think, wow, it was such a, such a great experience. And everybody talks, wants to talk about that film, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of one of these iconic, I mean, the whole series is iconic, but people love to hear that about that particular experience in my life, I
2: guess. I was looking at a couple of other interviews that you've done with people, and during the time that you sat down with ISCD, they asked about your aspirations when you were a child, and you told them you wanted to be an actor or a singer. Oh, yeah. Was going out for Thunderdome part of that (laughs) dream? Was this something that you specifically wanted to do, or were you one of those child actors that got driven out to auditions?
0: No, it was totally what I wanted to do. It's interesting actually because it was was absolutely, I mean, I was in acting classes and dancing and singing from kind of seven and then um, we ended up getting an agent about, well, it was suggested to get an agent when I was about nine or something. So um, that was pretty much kicked off from there. So I think that the Mad Max film was the first thing that I did and um, I actually did a few things after that. Mm. And when I got to about 14 or 15, we moved right out of Sydney And, um, to be honest with you guys, I kind of, you know, I just, it petered away the drive to get on a train and and go, go to for an hour and a half for an, for an ad for, you know, a commercial audition or something. Mm. So it kind of, um, you know, maybe unfortunately it petered away.
2: But at least the filming of this major movie was a good experience for you from the sound of it.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a tough experience. Like it wasn't, um, I mean, you know, I, I know that lots of actors would, be talking about their situations, but it, it was it was pretty sort of it was either really cold or we're in the sand dunes and all of the sand would be blowing in our mouths and eyes and we'd have people trying to clear our eyes of the of the sand so we could see. And you know, obviously, it was very hot in um, when we went to the Northern Territory. And I think my mother, yeah, mum was with my mum was with me and she sort of blacked out and had to. Get oh my <laughs>
2: Oh, no, oh gosh. <laughs> Had
0: to get, uh, you know, medical help because she just sort of fell over because it was so bloody hot. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it was sort of nearly 50 degrees Celsius. So it was just, it, everything was kind of the extreme in terms of the elements, but <laughs> looking back, it was just amazing. And I remember going to the premiere of the film and sort of thinking, wow, when, you know, the opening credits with um, One of the Living by Tina Turner, she was just really big. She'd just become huge, you know, and she had a comeback. So she just became sort of big at that point. So it was a huge thrill to to know that you're in a film like with with Tina Turner
2: at the time. Absolutely did you and helen bidet have a sort of special working relationship considering that your character was supposed to be related to her
0: yeah so i was her son supposed to be and um yeah so we we worked together a lot lot, because obviously there was that whole sort of part where she was dragging max along after she found him and yelling out to me and then that's when you see the, the lizard and i yell out to her and but, yeah, she, we were, we sort of had a pretty good, you know, uh, leading up to that point too when it became apparent that she was the mother and I was the son. Um, then we were obviously workshopping a lot before that. But, yeah, we yeah, worked with
2: her quite closely. Out of the different locations that you went to, which one would you say is the one that you enjoyed the most?
0: Well, I enjoyed going to Northern Territory because we were sort of – we had the crew and we went out to these locations that um, – It was just a little bit sort of, uh, what's the word to use? Like we had to be really respectful of the locals because a lot of Indigenous uh, Aboriginal people, Mm -hmm. whenever they came out and wanted to hang out in the area we were filming, we had to just stop and let them do what they needed to do and then we would start again. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was just interesting because we went to some quite beautiful locations in sort of rustic outback Australia. Um, I, I enjoyed that part because it was just sort of that, it was an exciting process for a 10-year-old kid to be taking off and filming in a, you know, huge crack in the earth and, and then being taken up this mountain, which I was petrified of, they had to sort of nurse me up this mountain you know, with harnesses on, so to get up there with that lizard. <laughs> <laughs> and then they sort of say to me, you oh, are you going to get an award for bravery and all this sort of crap? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that was, that was fun. I mean, the whole thing in the end was fun because we had, uh, you know, working in in um, Blackheath, which is in the Blue Mountains here in Sydney. Mm-hmm. When we did all those cave scenes, you know, all of us kids sort of became friends, and we remained friends um, for for some time after that, and did other things together. Some of us, um, you know, television and stuff after that. So, it was just it was just a good experience. I think the whole thing overall was you know, in a lot of ways it was 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 really good. It was really fun.
2: You said that after about 14, 15, you more or less walked away from acting. What brought you to the world of interior design? I'm hoping you can connect those two points for us.
0: Wow, that's a funny question. I was actually... I've got a business coach in, in Los Angeles, actually, and she's kind of like, well, this is your creative. This is your second sort of wind with the creative side. So I don't know. I think... Um, you know, I, I look back and I think, you know, what would have happened if you'd have kept going, you know, because um, the acting piece I think was something that came quite naturally and uh, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't sort of take off. So I think the interior design thing is probably a, well, it's definitely the creative side that, that that's come back through. But, I mean, I did a lot of, um, you know, and I have done a lot. I've been working in corporate for years as well. So, um, but, yeah, the, the interior design part is just the creative side coming out and and i think that's sort of at this point in my life that's what's that's what's there to fill that sort of that need i think the creative side is
2: the interior design part yeah and i think you've been doing that since 2010 yeah i've been
0: i've had a business since 2010. it's been a few years now to to get going but yeah it's it's been good yeah i've had um a lot of editorial and i had my first well i had my second cover um grand designs australia in 2017 um i've had editorial in singapore and so yeah it's it's finally getting to a point where it's 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 getting there but it's like any business you're starting off it takes takes a lot of time a lot of trial and error
2: well every review that i've ever read where you're involved has been glowing and people have a lot of really positive things to say about your work. So you're definitely doing something right.
0: <laughs> uh, thanks, Rick. Yeah, that's lovely to, to hear. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I love that. I love the reviews. Thank you. Yeah.
2: It has been such a good time sitting down and talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a lot of great success. <laughs> As you go forward with your interior design work, uh, for any of our Australian listeners, if you have an interior space that needs design consulting, we know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, is there anywhere that you would like people to check out? Yeah, sure. So from next week, I'm um,
0: it's AdamSgoogle.com, and that's my interior uh, design destination. So it's it's I was I was AU. .com.edu, but now I'm .com. So it's
2: AdamsGoogle.com. Sounds good. Well, that about does it. Adam, we'll let you get going. Thank you again for coming on with us.
0: Okay, nice to talk to you guys. Have a good evening. See
2: ya. Getting back to the minute, he's there hissing at the lizard, and then he hears echoing through the canyon, Savannah's call. What stood out to me about this call is that it actually sounds a bit like the whistles that are used with the bosun's call. Good point. Yeah. They start off with a low for a couple of seconds. They go high and then they drop back down low again. It sounds like the kind of thing that you would signal on a whistle. Hmm.
1: Well, considering that we really know nothing about their parents, the only adult we know anything about is Captain Walker, it's entirely possible that one of their parents had nautical experience and had experience with that whistle.
2: Knew something about doing calls and whatnot.
1: Yeah. And they pass that down to the kids as a survival tactic. Mm -hmm.
2: So Finn stands up, shouts back to Savannah, and then turns around, leans over a rock, and shouts again to this group of children that are down below. And they are gatherers. They are there picking up. Let's see. What does the storybook say? They gather plants, berries firewood, things like that. That's their job. But as Finn calls down to them, they realize, oh, hey, something's going on. We need to go meet Finn. Let's all hop in this raft, which I'm actually surprised that it's still floating because they probably crashed over a decade ago.
1: Yeah, the raft is my question. So they have this raft and they have a river. I know there's a lot of kids, but did they ever consider using this raft, building another raft and just floating down river.
2: It's hard to say. Yeah. We're going to learn more about how the children came to be where they are in a couple weeks time. Yes. There'll be plenty of time for that. I want to say not next week or the week after, but I think the week after that is where we get Savannah telling the story of how they got to be in this place. So all of these kids, they jump in the raft, they get moving. They obviously need to go somewhere somewhere to get up to the other side of this canyon where Finn is sitting. And the next thing we see, the last, oh, 10, 11, 12 seconds of this minute, is Finn running along the sand, and he's shouting, Savannah, Savannah, running towards her. Now, I learned from the storybook that Finn is actually Savannah's child.
1: Where in the story does it put that information?
2: In the storybook, it puts it right after Savannah shouts her call that she's returning. Okay. It says, Finn McCoo, Savannah's young son, heard her cry and shouted to the other tribe members down in the gorge. They stopped their work and looked up.
1: I cannot find that in this area of the story. Maybe they'll say it further on and... The picture book story, the simplified, just moved the information for simplicity's sake. But I don't see that information yet.
2: What's interesting is that I didn't get that sense from just watching the movie.
1: No, neither did I.
2: I just sort of assumed that all of the kids in the crack in the earth were just second generation wastelanders. Like their parents were there when the end of the world happened. And then they were born in the intervening years between the apocalypse and now.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really okay with the idea that Finn is Savannah's son because there is a pregnant young woman in the group.
2: Kusha, yeah. We're not going to meet her until the other gatherers catch up Mm -hmm. to Savannah and Finn, but I think that's going to happen pretty early on in the week. It's interesting to think about this little society that they've built. They don't really go into how it's structured, how they handle things, how they govern we get a few peaks and suggestions of how things could go it seems that they dictate their hierarchies by the jobs that they do like everyone has a position that they fill like a job to do but then again the movie does not take a lot of time going into it well frankly the movie doesn't need to take a lot of time going into it that's what the novelizations are for
1: i was going to say that's what we're for
2: well that too <laughs> but we have to read it from somewhere.
1: Yes, we do. I'm very much looking forward to reading it in the novelization, seeing what other ideas George Miller had about this group of kids. Mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated by them. Yeah? Yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm still not quite sure what to think of them.
1: There was one minor thing that I did notice before we close out this week. As Finn is running towards Savannah calling her name, the shadows of the clouds running across the sand are moving really, really fast. Yeah, And I guess I can believe that the clouds really are moving that fast. It just looks a little odd.
2: Yeah. Where Um, we are in the US, we don't get to see a lot of environments like this where there's not a lot of ground clutter. Like You look out, even over fields and whatnot, a lot of the times they're covered in grass, there's trees, you don't see for miles and miles and miles. And so when you get these situations where clouds are moving quickly, oftentimes you don't get as distinct of an outline as we see here.
1: Right. So day. you think it's just it's an effect of a different environment that I'm used to?
2: Oh, absolutely. Okay. You don't I think mean, the
1: footage is sped up at all? Nope. Okay. You would have noticed it way more than I would have.
2: It didn't stand out to me, but then again, I spent multiple years out in the high deserts in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got to see stuff like that firsthand because you just looked out over miles and miles and miles and you could see giant splotching shadows of clouds moving across the plane. Okay. So... Yeah, it was probably just pretty windy up where the clouds were, that sort of thing. But but as I say every week, that brings us to the end of this minute and this week. When we come back on Monday, we're going to see Savannah and Finn joined by more of the waiting ones. The group will gather Max up and take him back to the crack in the earth, and we'll get to see just how many kids there are hanging out in this oasis. But before Monday rolls around, Saturday is coming tomorrow, which means we'll have a new episode of Anarchy Road out. We will be talking about week 16. Ruvio is going to be called a nearsighted gynecologist, which I'm sure he has no idea what that means, but we're going to have a fun laugh because we're adults. Peter is going to start using his imagination, and there's going to be an imaginary food fight that erupts. And then we get a nice scene between Thudbutt and Peter where Thudbutt reveals that Tootles really did lose his marbles.
1: Oh, so, such so a sweet scene.
2: If you want to hear us talk about that, go on our Patreon, patreon.com slash MadMaxMin, throw three bucks at us, and you can join us on this just weird journey through Neverland. We'll be back on Monday talking about more Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, so be sure to come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad
1: Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
2: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one time donation by clicking the donate link.
1: Thank you for joining us for minute 48 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody say-